Welcome to another episode of Women Rabbis Talk. I am one of your hosts, Rabbi Emma Gottlieb, here with my fabulous co-host, Rabbi Marcy Bellows. We are also joined today by Rabbi Miri Gold, our guest for this episode. As we do every week, we'll start with a little bit of thinking together. Marcy, what are you thinking about this week? This week, I am thinking about the fact that I just started the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism's Brickner Clergy Fellowship, which is a social justice fellowship over about two years that they encourage us and educate us and then follow us for accountability through this process of strengthening our own social justice work for ourselves personally, and of course, most importantly, in our congregations. And over this uh, past week, we had an in-person retreat, which was really incredible. And one of the most fantastic and fascinating takeaways for me was that I had always kind of understood and I guess intuitively used the terms social action and social justice differently, but hadn't really understood the difference between the two and was sometimes using them interchangeably. And it, it that sounds so, I guess, kind of rudimentary, but in reality for me, I hadn't put all of the pieces together for the difference between social action, which is those those projects we take on, which are so important, like soup kitchens, like coat drives, like blood drives, all of the real direct service events and programming that we do in our congregations. And it can also include education versus social justice, which are the actions we take to actually affect change in the world, like going and advocating at the Capitol or doing letter writing campaigns. And that was fascinating to really finally understand that, yes, there is a lot of overlap between social justice and social action, but that this fellowship is about social justice and really Mm. trying to make change in the world. And it uh, highlighted for me how passionate I am about so many different causes and how much I look forward to really honing that skill in my rabbinate. Wow. That sounds like such an incredible opportunity. And yeah, thank you for sharing that learning with all of us. I think it's it's always so interesting to me to, to see that for some people, social action is what really gets them going. And that like local hands on person to person, person to animal or whatever it is, you know, that, that hands on tikkun olam where you're like in the trenches and you're, you're fixing the world with your hands and your, and your body and yourself and your time. And then, you know, and then other people who are, are so passionate about social justice and are, social justice warriors and are in, you know, a different kind of trench where they're, they're not, you know, in the soup kitchen, but they're lobbying for systemic change and taking it to the streets. And yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's so important that in our communities, we have opportunities for people to engage 
uh, on both levels. Exactly. Because, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, some people respond better to one than to other, more passionate about one than the other, um, or have time in a different way for one or the other. So yeah, we want to we want to give chances for people to do both for sure. Yeah, and that was something that was a big revelation for me was to consider the fact that it's not going to be the same people. And maybe we're asking too much of your typical social action committee mm. to do both because different yeah. people resonate with different sides of that coin, that Tikkun Olam coin. So what are you thinking about, Emma? I am thinking about what it means to be a serious Jew and how to talk about it in our communities. I was listening to, I'll shout out our one of our sister Jewish podcasts, Unorthodox, and their host, Mark Oppenheimer, was, um, was discussing on their most recent episode a quote that I think was, um, was from Rabbi Kushner about serious Jews and how serious Jews are found in all different denominations and that a serious Jew is someone who, I hope I'm getting this right, I don't have it in front of me, but a serious Jew is someone who is able to identify what Judaism brings to their life and what would be missing in their life without Judaism. As I was listening to the discussion on unorthodox, my initial thought was, you know, oh, this is great fodder for, for a sermon. And then I sort of started thinking a little bit more about, you know, how, how do we have that conversation in our communities without either just preaching to the choir, the people who are already serious about their Judaism, or not, you know, offending or turning off the people who are less serious about their Judaism and might feel called out or judged by a sermon that discusses it in that way. Um, you know, is there is there a way to talk about and to encourage people to to deepen their relationship with Judaism and to to find ways of being serious about their Judaism without making them feel badly about where they are in that moment and sort of how do we meet people where they are and still have that conversation or do we not have that conversation maybe we need to have a different conversation but so that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking about it got me thinking so thank you Mark Oppenheimer (laughs) yeah that is always a real risk in our preaching is trying to move people without alienating people how do we inspire them and not I don't know push them away yeah yeah and I you know I I, I, it's also a conversation that I'd like to be having you know regularly in the community and not just on the you know the two holidays where our pews are full and we are sort of you know often as rabbis you know we sort of joke about the captive audience and I think there are lots of us who who feel like that's the obvious time to have that conversation because we we have that more captive audience. And so it's a good opportunity to to do the, you know, why be Jewish sermon. But it's, you know, my whole rabbinate is why be Jewish. Like I, I want to be talking about that every day, not just on the high holidays and not just in a, not just like from the, from the pulpit, you know, looking down and, making people feel guilty about not being Jewish enough, but to, to find everyday ways of having that conversation. And I, maybe that's part of what we're doing here. I like to think so. Yeah. 
We haven't had a chance to officially introduce our guest, Rabbi Miri Gold, yet, but we wanted to know, do you want to chime in at all on these topics? (laughs) Well, coming from Israel, I can't even imagine that question coming up of what does it mean to be serious about your Judaism. It's very interesting. I think what we're looking for in Israel is to have a warm and engaging and inviting place where Jews who know they're Jewish can come in and find ways to express their Judaism in ways that are not orthodox. Because for many Jews in Israel, they know about Orthodox Judaism. And then if they say, well, that's not for me, then they think that there's nothing. So we're trying to show that there are lots of alternatives. And maybe one of the luxuries we have in Israel is that the seasons and the holidays match and that our national holidays in great part are Jewish holidays. And so maybe the criteria are different because many very serious Jews don't go to synagogue, yet they are very aware of their identity. And probably in the synagogue, we're trying to find multiple doors by which they can enter and prayer services, just one of them. You can be a very serious Jew and never set foot in a synagogue. Exactly. Um, but again, there's yeah. a certain luxury that around a holiday, all the media and things done in school are all oriented in different ways. So you can hear intellectual discussions or read articles or find uh, cultural activities that draw people in. And I think for us, the challenge is to help people find those meaningful ways and not feel turned off when they think, oh, the only way is the orthodox way. And of course, the rabbinu. Uh, would say, uh, oh, you know, we have the patent on how to be Jewish. Well, of course they don't. But for some Jews who haven't gotten out in the world, they sort of buy into that and they'll say, but that's not for me, and therefore walk away. In Israel, if you would ask anyone to describe what it means to them to be Jewish, you'd find you'd have a rainbow of possibilities that from one end to the other, everyone finds their place, and there's no black and white which I think has been sort of a myth in the past, that Judaism is black and white. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And I think I think that's part of why I'm so intrigued by the language of serious Judaism as opposed to religious or, or even traditional, that, that it speaks to a wider field of entry, um, that you can be serious about your Judaism, even if you don't feel called to the religious side of Judaism um, or moved by the religious side of Judaism. Um, One one thing I want to interject is that in Israel, it's very common that people will say you're dati, which means religious, or you're chiloni, which is a weird way of saying you're not necessarily synagogue observant. But I'm very careful to talk about Orthodox Jews or um, observant Jews in terms of mitzvot, but that one can be religious in a different way. You know, we get surveyed, are you dati or chiloni? So I'll say, ani dati are And they don't know what to do with that. <laughs> right. So um, I think the language is definitely a key. And I guess in saying, are you serious about it? Maybe it gives people some kavod, some dignity to whatever way they're choosing. And, of course, we want people to be informed and make choices based on 
knowledge rather than on ignorance or laziness. Absolutely. And and we want to lift up people who are connecting to Judaism in in other ways, like like we were talking about, you know, with social justice and, and social action. There may be Jews for whom, you know, Shabbat and the holidays are not meaningful ways of expressing their Judaism, but going to march for women's rights or climate change might be for them a clear expression of their Jewish identity. And that is also serious Judaism. Yes. And uh, and I think that's that's such an intriguing and interesting conversation that, uh, that I want to think more about and keep having with people. Yeah, we definitely have those three pillars of, you know, Al Shloshah Devarim, Haolama Omed, on the three things that the world stands. And we don't always make legitimate all three of those pillars, all three of those stools, uh, the legs of the stool, you know, that you have Torah, you have all the learning, and you have people who are drawn to learning and, and not worship, right, or not social justice. And then you have Avodah, you have the worship and people who are regulars at services, and that's their way in. And then you have the Gimilut Chasadim, all of this social action and social justice, and that you're right, that could be someone's way of saying, I am called to make the world a better place because I am a Jew, and that's my kavanah, that's my intention behind it. Yeah, exactly, Marcy. I couldn't have said so better myself. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, we have already heard such wonderful wisdom from our guest this episode, who is Rabbi Miri Gold. She was born in Detroit, and Rabbi Gold moved to Israel in 1977. She joined Kibbutz Gezer with other American expatriates and began leading services for the kibbutz. In 1993, after helping her daughter prepare for the bat mitzvah she herself had been denied as a girl, she decided to become a rabbi. Ordained by Hebrew Union College in Israel in 1999, she was only the third woman rabbi ordained in Israel at that time, and she became the official rabbi of Kibbutz Gezer, with her salary, like those of many non-Orthodox rabbis, underwritten by donations from abroad. We're going to hear more about what happened with that journey of fighting for an Israeli salary from her. And so we welcome Rabbi Miri Gold to Women Rabbis Talk. And what would you like us to call you throughout our episode today? Miri. (laughs) (laughs) That's my name. I mean, I know that there's there's a conversation ongoing, especially among women, of whether they want to be called by their last name, their first name, I guess it has connotations. And for me, perhaps because I've been on kibbutz for 43 years, I'm simply Miri. And if someone feels the need to call me Rabbi Miri, that's fine. But Miri is I'm very comfortable. And that's my nickname for my Hebrew name, because I was born Marilyn Ray in Detroit. And at the same time, my Ashkenazi sort of traditional family gave me a Hebrew name, Miriam Rachel. When I was 19, I spent my junior year abroad at Hebrew University, and I introduced myself as Miriam, because Marilyn is a mouthful. And my friends, who were my age, 19, 20, said, oh, Miriam's a grandma's name, you know, a Safta's name. So I said, we're going to call you Miri, and that stuck. So Miri is uncomfortable. 
That's so funny. And, My Hebrew and, name is Mar- is Miriam as well. And people can't say Marcy. They say Merci. Um, the, you know, Merci in Israel. And so, but anytime I've said Miriam, they also give me like, oh, that's like Edna or, you know, like some other <laughs> ancient name. Ancient. For some, lots of uh, people are asking me this all the time. And I think it's a question that's coming up in our podcast too, especially with um, women who've worked in Israel as rabbis, when people do call you uh, Rabbi Miri or Rabbi Gold in Hebrew, what Hebrew word do they use? Oh, what a good question. Well, you have to realize that for many Israelis, the idea of a woman rabbi is at best a stranger unknown. And so people who are trying to be respectful and knowing that in Hebrew it's either feminine or masculine, they will call me Rabbanit. And I will very politely say, no, Rabbanit is the wife of the man rabbi. And I am a rabbi, so I'm a rabbah. My actual title is Harav Miri Gold of the first generation who's Hasmacha um, said Moratenu Harav. But when I speak about women in the profession, it's certainly about rabbah, rabot, and there are those who, coming after me, said, we want to change in our uh, ordination. It's got to say rabbah, moratenu harabah. So there are many, many, probably most of the women call themselves harabah. But rabbanit, I have to, you know, always very politely correct them. And besides that, my husband David is the rabbitson, um, I have a friend, Rabbi Stephanie Bernstein, whose husband came up with the term rabbit sir, which I thought was cute. Um, she's my then, classmate, Stephanie. She's my classmate. Yeah? Oh, wow. Yeah, she's so great. So, Hi, Stephanie. Um, you know, sometimes there are things you have to make a point of correcting and other things you can let slide. But that's one of the ones that I generally correct because... Um, it's, it's coming from a misunderstanding or some ignorance, but if people are polite, then I'm polite back to them. The ones who drive me crazy are the ones who'll say, well, I'm secular, and I don't really observe many commandments. Um, you know, and they're talking about keeping kosher and driving on Shabbat. That's what they're talking about. And then they'll say, but I know that the real Judaism is orthodox. Those are the people who drive me up the wall. We're not so polite, usually. I don't have patience for them. But the good thing is that, and I think this is true about everything, that some change takes a very long time in coming. I learned this in the period between 1980 and 1989 when I was working very hard for Soviet Jewry. And David and I went to the former Soviet Union in 1980 and we met all these refuseniks. And one of them kept writing to us and we would write back. And so as a kibbutz, we adopted this man, Alex Zelichenuk. He used to send the most beautiful stamps on his letters. And we put up a poster. And if there were ever letters or cards, we'd put it up. And I remember thinking, I don't believe he's ever going to get out. But yet we kept pushing to do whatever we could think of. So when he turned 50, we were sitting in the dining room of the kibbutz before an asefa, before a general assembly, and I gave out 50 postcards, and I said, just write happy birthday, Mazalto, whatever you want. We sent 25 to his wife in Leningrad, 25 to the gulag where he was imprisoned, and 
it seemed to have helped because in 1989 he got out. And I remember thinking, this is a miracle because I just didn't believe it. And then I decided that hope is a mitzvah, Mm. but that it has to be accompanied by action. When we started the Supreme Court case in 2005 to get salaries through our taxes that we all pay, um, that had been going only to Orthodox institutions, I wasn't sure that it would ever be resolved. And at one point, there was a question about whether we should take the money and run, meaning we could get money for cultural activities or we could hold out until they would say loud and clear rabbi. And I was among those who said, let's wait. It's the principle of the matter. I mean, it's true. The funds help. But to me, that wasn't the main part of it. So in the middle of 2012, after we had been in court on and off and the government saying, oh, we need more time. And it was all such baloney that actually what happened was the court did not decide. As you said, the attorney general decided. And he made a very simple statement. Rabbis of non-Orthodox communities in rural areas are entitled to salaries from the state. And it ended up being through culture and sport. And my son is a professional pitching coach with the Seattle Mariners. So my husband, David, says that he's very happy that his mother is getting money from the Ministry of Sport. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a major lesson, that sometimes we have to just have lots of patience while being active at the same time. That's such a beautiful idea that hope is a mitzvah. We've, um, we've, we've given away the end of the story. We started a little bit at the end, so I'm wondering if we should just roll back for a second and have you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about um, how you became a rabbi and how that whole journey to that historic moment came about? Okay, as I said, I grew up in a somewhat traditional home. My maternal grandparents, who'd come from White Russia, were in my eyes at the time in the '60s Orthodox because they didn't drive on Shabbat; they kept kosher. My grandfather put tefillin on every morning. He walked to shul. In Israeli terms, they'd call him traditional but not orthodox because he does he didn't always have a kippah in his head. He had it on for prayer and meals and, of course, um, you know, in the Bet Knesset. And my grandmother only put some kind of head covering on in the synagogue. But for the children and the grandchildren, they were the orthodox Yiddishkeit for all of us. So... Um, I actually went through a conservative synagogue's Hebrew school through 12th grade. Um, and at one time I went to services Saturday morning very often. And when I moved to Israel, I actually was not riding on Shabbat and not writing and just trying to be a little bit more traditional perhaps. But one of the things that pulled me to Israel was that I felt if I'd stayed in the States, I'd have to work very, very hard to be an identifying Jew, and perhaps even to find a Jewish partner and have Jewish grandchildren. And so maybe naively, but really thinking of it seriously, I thought, okay, if I live in Israel, my children don't have to go to Hebrew school, which I did not enjoy because it was in the afternoon or the evening. And it was, you know, I always thought it was being tiring. And the chocolate milk and those, you remember those wax coated <laughs> containers? That might be before your time. No, they we still awesome. had them. <laughs> they were terrible. 
but the truth is I had never realized growing up, it just had never made an impression that my grandparents were very labor Zionist oriented and my mother's youngest brother spent the year 1951 and two in Israel and the first Habonim workshop. So there was actually a lot of it in the family, but I never paid attention to it. Hmm. And when I was 16, my mother, uh, who was a good Hadassah lady, said, how would you like to go to Israel? There's this program through USY called Pilgrimage. And she said, you know, I want you to love and support Israel. So I said, okay. And she had one condition that I finish Hebrew high school, which is an afternoon evening thing. And I only had one more year to go. So I said, sure, no problem. Well, she never dreamt that I would end up living in Israel. I mean, that was not her point. That was 1966, the year before the 67 war. And in six and a half weeks, we saw every possible nook and cranny within those 48 borders. Um, and we went to Hebrew U one afternoon to give at Ram. And a few of us said very casually, oh, wouldn't it be fun to come back for a junior year? And I ended up doing that. And by the end of that year, I was pretty hooked and wanted to come back to Israel, but not necessarily knowing in what way. And Kibbutz Gezer appealed to me because they had a kosher kitchen and they had some semblance of a synagogue. And we just didn't find our place in the majority of kibbutzim that were very Jewish in their celebration, but not in the way that we knew it from the United States of, you know, connecting it to synagogue and things. But on the other hand, the kibbutz dati was not egalitarian, so we couldn't see ourselves there. So we had to carve our own path, which is what we did. And as we said, that's what led me to, to go to rabbinic school. The key was that when our first kids were bar and bat mitzvah age, the boys were going to an ultra-Orthodox kibbutz and yeshiva down the road from Gezer called Shalabim. And there were a couple of brave pioneering girls who would get schlepped to Jerusalem. So I said, we didn't come here for that. So I took all my 12 years of Hebrew school and a little extra tutoring and help from friends to learn how to read trope because growing up, my rabbi would not allow girls on the bima. Very sweet man, but no. I just started doing what I called a para-rabbinic uh, journey. And after my daughter was bat mitzvah, rabbis Nama Kelman, who was our first reform rabbi in Israel, and her brother, Levi Wyman Kelman, along with my husband and my mother, who was a pioneer in her own way as a nurse graduating in 1940 and serving in World War II as an army nurse, they all ganged up on me. <laughs> and they basically said, you know, let's get serious here. So in 1994, at the age of 44, which at the time was very old to be going to rabbinic school. I mean, I know since then, many of my beloved women colleagues started later than that even. But I went to rabbinic school and finished as fast as I could because I was schlepping back and forth between Gezer and Jerusalem with three little kids at home. So I finished all the studies by the end of 98, and our ordination was in March at the time, 99, and um, I was 49 years old. So wow. it was a big deal. And really, this is way before the court case that officially made me the rabbi of Gezer, because while I was in school, we affiliated our little synagogue with the reform movement. And I realized that if we didn't, then 
as a graduate, they could have sent me up north to Naria if they needed a rabbi there. So we affiliated and did something that was innovative. We said, we're going to be a regional reform congregation so that anyone in the area who would like to come to an egalitarian synagogue can come to us. So we were never of Kibbutz Gezer also because we didn't want the people living at Gezer to feel like all of a sudden they're identified as reformed Jews. We were very sensitive to that. And so we said, we are a reform community within Kibbutz Gezer. We do a lot of things together with the cultural committee, but we we didn't become a Lotan or a Yehel. Wow. Um, and that's kind of the model that's happening in many other places in Israel, including on other kibbutzim, which is mm. pretty special. And of course, kibbutz Lotan and kibbutz Yehel are two kibbutzim that did choose for the whole kibbutz community to affiliate Correct. with the reform movement. Yeah. Miri, what makes being a woman rabbi in Israel, what's different um, about being a woman rabbi in Israel than being a woman rabbi in North America? You, you were the third uh, woman to be ordained in Israel at a time when in North America there were already many women rabbis. Uh, what else is different about it? Well, I think it was a matter of education and exposure that um, made me um, kind of a fish out of water, a strange duck, whatever, you know, expression you might want to use. There was a lot of media flurry around it, and a lot of it was insulting, demeaning, hurtful. One of my rabbinic friends, who's very wise, said to me, don't look at the comments uh, in the Internet. And so I think maybe I looked once and then realized he was right. Don't look because a lot of it was really painful. And I think it's taken years and it's still going on that the more that people are exposed to the liberal Judaism, the more they like it. Israeli kids before or after the army often come to camps in the reform and conservative movement. People go abroad to work, say, Amdocs in the States or they go for their Ph.D., and some of them come in contact with your congregations. And when they come back to Israel, they're much more open to finding something for their child's uh, life cycle event or for a wedding or even for a funeral. So it's very grassroots oriented that people slowly are getting to know us. I think that even though in percentages they'll say the Haredim are 10% and the Reform and Conservative are 10% of the population, when the court case decision came down and someone did a survey, of course, I would say that if you if you added those who were for it with those who were indifferent, you got over 50%. So that, I think that was very telling. So the more that people are exposed to Reform Judaism, the more likely it is that they're going to use it in a positive way. Even the fact that there are 50 preschools and of course, here it's different. If your child is ready for bar mitzvah, you start preparing four months in advance. You know, the kids know Hebrew already. But we don't have something that you must belong to the synagogue for a year or so before. It's not realistic for Israel. I think we've made many, many friends and supporters through, through life cycle events. So I think being a woman rabbi has 
been a little tougher than being a reform male rabbi, but for those who are very venomously against us, it wouldn't matter if someone is Torah observant, wears a kippah, even has a beard, the fact that they were educated through the reform movement makes them off the chart unacceptable. So mm. some of it is not easy to understand, and every so often we just have to say, we have to work on the things that we have influence over. And my feeling is that our goal right now in Israel is to build up more tolerance. And then eventually we'll get to the place of pluralism where people celebrate the differences. Because I don't think we're there yet. Wow. Your, your court case, fighting to be paid as a... Uh, community rabbi by the Israeli government. I mean, what was so important about it that I know um, I was really struck by was you were being paid essentially by either donations from abroad or from even your own congregants who were also paying taxes to the Israeli government and their taxes were going to pay Orthodox rabbis that they weren't even going to and learning from, right? And so the court case was to have the taxes also go to the support of reform rabbis, um, namely you as the pioneer, as the chalutzah in this um, this whole incredible case. Over the 10 years that it took to finally be recognized, how did you, how did you maintain your strength and your hope as you've talked about? How did your community continue fighting and, and keep the, the chutzpah, you know, the, the guts to keep fighting? What, what were your secrets? Well, it, it's interesting that you say the chutzpah because early on, I was in Detroit where I grew up and was interviewed by the Detroit Jewish News and the cartoon cover, which is framed, um, shows me with my arms folded, looking very defiant and, you know, indignant. And around were these really sort of caricature pictures of ultra-Orthodox men. And that actually drew a lot of ire from some local observant Jews in Detroit. You know, (laughs) I think when you believe in something, you just work as hard as you can to promote it and implement it. And in some ways, you have to have blinders on and you, you gain strength from one another. And I will say one of the most important things was having groups from synagogues from North America or other places abroad come for a Friday night or a Saturday morning. And whenever I go into court, I would have in my mind a picture of all these people who are supportive. And I think that diaspora Jewry in the liberal world was extremely important in keeping us going. Because it would have been easy to just throw our hands up and say, we're never going to make it. But at the same time, when I would go to the States to talk about it and try to fundraise, since obviously we needed to raise funds to keep the synagogue going, it was really important that people in the States and in Canada not feel overwhelmed by despair to the point where they'd say, I can't deal with Israel. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It was always important for me, and it still is, to talk about all the things that are going on in Israel that are not on the government level, that we can all be so proud of, especially when we talk about social justice, social action. Um, There's so many wonderful projects going on. 
that we have to just focus on those good things and try to be educating without being angry about it, which isn't always easy. But like I say, I think a great factor was the support of Diaspora Jewry. And Annette Hoffman was very smart that she asked people to send me emails. She created a special email address so people could write to me and basically say, you know, keep fighting. It was just heartwarming. For our listeners who don't know, can you just say a a word or two about who Annette Hoffman is? Not everyone would be familiar. Well, and it's important to say that this court case was handled by the Israel Religious Action Center's legal arm. It's sort of the rack of Israel. It's called IRAC. Um, And they deal with many, many different issues, but they're the ones who decided it was time to tackle this issue. And Annette Hoffman is the director of IRAC. So she did a lot of speaking herself, came up with this idea that people should send me encouraging emails. And I have such great respect for them because this legal department has won some amazing um, decisions. And when I think about how, oh, with so long, 2005 to mid-2012, not implemented until 2014, it's interesting to note that in that period of time, an important battle was won to get money for buildings for non-Orthodox synagogues, little ones, little like prefabs even. But when it was passed in 2007, the Supreme Court said, whether you like it or not, there are streams of Judaism in Israel. That was major because that was breaking that myth of Judaism is black and white. And in fact, our first logo, and I think it was a Rosh Hashanah greeting, had two doves facing each other, one black, one white. And it said, Yadut Lavan. Judaism isn't black and white. And today, what I think is so meaningful is that the logo is now colorful. And on the front of our Kabbalah Shabbat prayer book, you see a blue or a green dove, and there's colorful flowers around it. And it's just the blossoming, I think, and development of Reform Judaism in Israel in the last 20 years. Uh, I've had the privilege of bringing synagogue groups to spend Kabbalat Shabbat and dinner with your Birkat Shalom community twice, once in 2010 and once recently in uh, 2018. And the warmth and the love of your congregation is overwhelming. You are all just so lovely. And you can tell how much your community fells over you, as well as over Rabbi Steve Bernstein, who's now rising to the position of the community rabbi. Um, And I just I just want to thank through you your community for all of the the love that you give to all (laughs) the the many visiting congregations who come to spend time with you. Well, it's always our pleasure. And like I say, your presence strengthens us to keep going. It's always like a shot in the arm that we don't feel like we're, you know, the Hadass Ba'arava. They always talk about how if you can't um, smell the, the myrtle, then what good does it do? So if we're alone and we feel like we're on a desert island, then it's really hard to keep going. So your presence is crucial. It really is so precious to us. Mm. Such an important message and reminder. 
Miri, as you're looking back now at that historic journey and on your rabbinate as you're beginning retirement, what are some of the highlights, some of the takeaways, and what advice might you have for someone who's just starting out? Well, I'll start with the last part because when I decided to become a rabbi, I thought of it more as combining the services, the study, and sort of the social work shoulder to, you know, lean on, cry on, confide in, whatever, and was shocked to realize that you have to have managerial skills and fundraising skills. And I remember that one of the women who was ordained a number of years after me literally went around to different rabbis and different congregations and sort of interviewed them to try to figure out what she wanted to do. And in the end, she chose not to be a congregational rabbi. She's turned into a scholar. Um, She also goes abroad to work with um, communities in Spain and Portugal. And I think one of the important things is when someone is feeling the calling to the rabbinate to really explore what the many options are, because I think congregational leadership is very important. It's just not the only option for us out there. If I were doing it again, I don't know if I would have chosen a different path. But at the time, I felt like we have the community already. Let's give it somewhat of a framework for Jewish life. And that was what moved me to do it. So it's been a very satisfying journey. I think beyond the court case, the fact that we were the first regional community and that that's been copied was very important. The model that we set for first-year students to actually spend time in communities. Since 2004, we've had one or two rabbinic interns who have done their social action through us, first with prisoners in rehabilitation and then with special ed children doing a Kabbalah Shabbat. So we gave them a home away from home. They enriched us. That's something that's still going on that I think was very important. And also a lot of interfaith work. I think in general, the more that people get to know one another, the less fear there is and then you know, much more acceptance. So it works in every sphere. So I think everyone has to follow their heart and their interests and find the ways in which they can feel that they contribute the most you know, not not feel pushed into some kind of a defined box that doesn't necessarily fit them. And of course, it's maybe easier said than done. But I think there's a lot of room for being imaginative and creative. And and I think that women as rabbis is is very important in our Jewish world today, because I think it also gives a message, particularly to girls, but also to everybody else who's looking at the girls and seeing what they're doing to break myths and barriers and let women do what they want to do and move ahead and show that they're competent and that they're giving positively to the community. So probably at my retirement party, the the speech that affected everyone the most was a 15-year-old girl who was bat mitzvahed with us, who um, last summer went to Kutz and is in touch with all her friends, both in Israel and abroad. I mean, I think that her contact with us changed her life tremendously. And that that just 
touched everybody so much. And I think that's one of the things we sometimes forget is how much influence we have on those around us. And that we should look at that as um, a privilege and an honor that we can do that. That's incredible. What about your family? What has their reaction been over the years to your your impact and your role? Well, that's a great question. Just like everything else, it has evolved. When I was in school and my kids were not born as rabbi's kids, they ranged between five and 12 maybe when I first started. And when my daughter went to the army, she couldn't explain what I did. So she'd say her mother was a teacher. There was one Pesach where I was filmed earlier on a panel that was being shown on TV before Seder. And one of her army friends called her and said, you never told me your mother's a rabbi. Now, how they even know, I couldn't figure out because my last name is Gold and my husband and children are all Leishman. But somehow she uh, figured it out. And it was just difficult for them to accept. My youngest son would pat his head when he thought I could take my kippah off already after dinner on Shabbat. They just weren't comfortable with it. But at the retirement party, they all got up and the youngest one spoke and they were proud of me. And when the court case was resolved, my daughter was one of the first to go on Facebook and say how proud she was. So I feel like there's a little microcosm there of how Israeli society is becoming more comfortable with and even happy by the presence of Reform Judaism in Israel. So um, it's been an interesting journey for the whole family. Wow. Yeah, and definitely Mazel Tov. And I, there are so many rabbis to come uh, in Israel, especially, but but possibly in other places as well, who will will benefit from the fight that you fought and who will stand on your shoulders proudly. And just thank you from all of us and all of them. Well, thank you. As you may know, in every episode, we have an Ask the Rabbi question that is submitted by a listener. Today, we have an anonymous question, which is... Uh, I think very interesting, especially considering your role. Does being a woman rabbi make interfaith and or inter-Jewish work more difficult when you're working with people from traditions that don't recognize female clergy? Great question. I would say that I have no contact with Orthodox Jews. Being with Muslims and Christians, there's just a lot of respect, which I think is lovely, because I think we're all pushing for the same things of tolerance and acceptance and even love and appreciation. I think over the years I've realized how many universal values we have in common among various faiths and traditions. But honestly, I would say the one place where I've had no real inroads has been with Orthodox Jewish leaders who are generally men with exceptions, and they're notable exceptions. But um, I think I just think our, our presence is important, and wherever we can make an inroad is, is very, very positive. Being part of a regional council that has a chief rabbi, so to speak, um, I worked with one who's just such a lovely person um, that if he weren't worried about, say, getting funds from 
the government or the rabbinate, he would be much more open and willing to do things together, I believe. But there's still, you know, a lot of times when you sort of look back over your shoulder to see who's listening. We have a ways to go in that. And I wish that we will, I hope, will increase the the dialogue with Jews who at the moment don't accept us and find a way that they can at least, as uh, my husband David once said about politics, give us the right to be wrong and, you know, not say terrible things about us, which every so often you hear and they're not worth repeating. But we have to fight for what we believe. We have to do it with dignity and be open to listen to other people's narratives, even if they don't jive with ours. Wow. Definitely. Emma, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, in, in South Africa, it's a similar situation to Israel where the Orthodox are the mainstream sort of accepted brand of Judaism and progressive Judaism is still faced with a lot of stigma and misinformation and or just not even people knowing what it is, what it's about, that it exists. Uh, it's definitely easier for my male colleagues to work across the aisle with the Orthodox rabbis than it is for me to. Although I think, you know, similar to what Miri just described in, in my one-on-one, one-to-one conversations with, with Orthodox rabbis, there are some here who, who are lovely, who address me as rabbi in you know, a, a conversation just between the two of us when no one else is around to hear, but that becomes harder in in public spaces. So that's so that's the intra-Jewish work, inter-Jewish work. In terms of interfaith, I do I do find that easier. But but again, like that that word that Miri used, notable when whenever I'm working with a a male clergy person from another religion who you know, who treats me respectfully, um, especially in front of other people, I notice it and I appreciate it, which I think says that, you know, we're not yet at a time where we're taking that for granted. You know, I, I come into interfaith spaces with anxiety about, you know, will I be, how will I be treated in this space? And then I think often it goes well, but I'm still noticing and appreciative of when it goes well. Yeah. What about you, Marcy? Uh, It's interesting. In the majority of the interfaith work I have done, most of my interfaith colleagues have been women. Just locally, when I was on Long Island, most of the local colleagues from Christian congregations were women. On Long Island, there was not a local mosque. Here in Connecticut, again, most of the local clergy are women. Those who are male um, or men are from congregations that are very welcoming and and inclusive towards women. And so I haven't had I haven't had a lot of run-ins. The only the only issue I've had interestingly enough is Chabad. Chabad mm-hmm. rabbis not recognizing me or yeah, wanting to study with me. It's an invitation to study with their wives um, rather than with me and that that is hurtful, you know, and it is what it is and it's reality and I understand it rationally. I just wish that wasn't the way it is. The interfaith work has actually been a lot easier. Do you think there's a, a broader pattern? I mean, when you talk about women at interfaith gatherings, um, do you think women clergy members are more drawn to interfaith work than are 
male counterparts or are we relegated to that sometimes or do you think it's just a um, a happy coincidence? That's such a cool question. Um, these are all women who happen to be solo clergy in their congregations. But it, it does, you know, if you follow the the stereotype of women being collaborators, you know, we do tend to want to work together and to build bridges. So there isn't a competitive atmosphere. There's very much a desire to, you know, especially with the rise of anti-Semitism, I've already gotten a number of invitations from the churches in the area to come and speak during Lenten programs, um, or to do pulpit swaps where I come and speak just to demystify as the only synagogue, you know, in this huge area to demystify who the Jews are. So there, yeah. there is a lot of effort to do that, but it is primarily yeah. female clergy. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. Well, in Israel, anyone who's not Jewish is a man at this point, <laughs> um, whether it's the imam or you know the the Catholic priest who's in charge of a community or the Anglican priest. But I have to say that we have a close relationship with this small Catholic community at Latrun, where the sort of senior nun is definitely someone who is very much part of accepting groups and talking about what they do. And and it's not even an issue, an issue really of whether you're male or female. People just are respectful and, and get along and it's not an issue. But a little anecdote, I was in Auckland for the high holidays and I met the priest at the Anglican church in Auckland. And it was very interesting because I was completely comfortable there and accepted very well. His boss, and I don't know if she was called the deacon or something, so I didn't quite get what the difference was, but she was the overall person in charge. So of this very big Trinity Cathedral, she was the one in charge, but my interaction was with this man. And I learned something from him because he um, told me that the Anglican Church will not marry a same-sex couple, but they will bless them. And I thought that was so lovely because often there's a dilemma of what do you do? But the idea that you bless someone for, you know, their loving union was something I came away with from this gay Anglican priest who said I was a Catholic priest, but they weren't going to accept me as gay outwardly and certainly not as married. So he found his place comfortably in the Anglican church and, um, hmm. you know, just learning wisdom from other clergy without thinking about what your denominations are or anything else is certainly a plus. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that could be a whole other episode. Maybe one way, maybe one day it will be. So Miri, we do at the end, towards the end of each episode, a questionnaire Meher with our guests, a series of quick questions with less quick answers, um, but as quickly as you can, I guess, um, if, you'll, if you'll play along um, and, uh, and uh, answer these. Are you, are you ready to go? Ready to go. Okay. So the first question is, who was the first woman rabbi um, that you were aware of, either in your home synagogue um, or that was sort of your first woman rabbi? Um, the first one I was aware of was Kinnerichur Yon, but I would say my first woman rabbi and mentor was definitely Nama Kelman, who was yes. now the dean of Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. 
Yeah, all of us pass under her staff on our way through the rabbinical training experience and the reform movement. She's and she she was she was my shush bina when I was ordained. You know, you get walked up by someone, but since she's the dean, when I get to twenty five years in the rabbinate. I don't know if she'll be able to come down the steps to be able to bring me up. Wow, that's so special. Um, Will you please tell us about a woman that inspires you? It can be someone who's Jewish or not. Well, during the court case, um, I would often speak about Alice Miller, who, as a young woman with a commercial pilot's license, wanted to get into the, or at least try out for the Israeli Air Force, and Ezra Weitzman, who was the president, said, Medele, this isn't for you. Well, she won a Supreme Court case to be able to try out. And this is when I was in the midst of the court case. And it was telling that she um, was given the opportunity to try out. She did not make it into the course. But since then, there have been many women who have become pilots and navigators. So she was my model as we were facing this seemingly endless court trial to get, um, and really my case was not about being a woman rabbi getting a salary, but it certainly eliminated a hurdle. So um, she was she was definitely my role model. Mm-hmm. Wow. And she was South African, by the way, to begin with. Oh, I didn't know that. I had I had heard her name, but I didn't. I didn't know that she was South African. That's really cool. Thanks for thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay. So fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is, or women rabbis are. Um, women rabbis are awesome. <laughs> what do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? Well. The truth is, um, I don't think it's as prevalent in Israel, but we all read about how congregants look at what the women wear, that kind of thing that they don't do with men. Um, And I, I can't put my finger on anything in particular because I was always sort of at home in my congregation and didn't really have to deal with, um, outsiders so much commenting on what I did. But I think that women um, have to be fighters and have to develop some kind of a thick skin somewhere along their way. Yeah. Favorite Jewish character from a book or movie or TV show, if you have one? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I would say in Jewish life, from ancient times, Bruria is someone that um, I look to as being very wise. Um, and I know that in Jewish tradition, there are about a thousand men to a hundred women who are mentioned in the books. Um, mm. And if you look at certain books that give you Parshanut, they don't um, they don't have anything modern about women at all. It's all going back to the Middle Ages and things like that. So um, to me, Beria was an early example of someone thinking out of the box and being very wise, and I think it's a good role model. Yeah. I love that answer. So true. 
What is a Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life? Well, actually, one of them is a book called Finding God in the Garden. And it should be on my bookshelf right here, but I don't see it. But it's by um, <clears throat> one of the older Brickners. And um, I don't see it, but his... his you know how a lot of times people write G dash D. So in a way, what he was saying is you need to add an O because God is good. And I never feel comfortable telling people what God is because I'm not sure myself, but I always think of it as sort of whatever our ideal um, values of behavior and, and, you know, Ben Adam come from a standpoint of goodness and that, one of the amazing things is that in the Torah it says, you know, do what is Hayasharva had told, what's good and straight. But it's like, how do you know that? So you know that because you study and you learn and you have examples set. But it's not like you can have a definition of every single um, circumstance to know what to do with it. Um, so I think that's one of the things that guides me. And also this idea of hope um, being a mitzvah where you... You can always want a miracle, but you can't count on it. You have to work hard to achieve it. And um, that comes from an amazing book called The Anatomy of Hope by Jerome Grotman, who is uh, an MD who survived cancer himself. And I think is I found him very inspiring. Yeah, that one's on my bookshelf, too. It's a life-changing book, yes. But finding what are, the garden is delightful. I don't know where it is. And not yeah. knowing me, I lent it to someone and didn't write it down, and I'll never see it again, unfortunately. That's the bane of it's every rabbinet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we've all been there. So, Miri, last question, just like we started uh, our episode asking each other, what are you thinking about these days? Uh-huh. Well, honestly... Right now, um, I think a lot about um, the politics of the Middle East and the connection between Netanyahu and Trump um, and what will be in the next elections. And very sadly, I think that my children's generation does not at all believe that there'll ever be peace. And that's very upsetting because mm -hmm. it's not even like they're hoping there will be. It's just for them sort of a given that there will not be, and I find that really sad. But um, it's a very challenging time not to to give up, and I think it's also a challenging time, and it, you know, occupies my thoughts about um, Jews who are fed up with or alienated from Israel, and I think what we always need to work on is to create a core love and out of that love, there's a right to be critical, but not to abandon. And I see that as, as like a healthy family. You don't abandon your family members, even if you don't agree with things they're doing. And to me, it's a very precious connection that we have and need to have between what is Israel, and that is the state and the politics, but the people and all it stands for, and our family across the sea. So I think that occupies my thoughts quite a bit. So a lot of really important stuff to be thinking about. 
we're thinking about it with you things like that to think about (laughs) i'd rather think about you know what kind of cake am i going to bake for two bishvat for the kibbutz uh, (laughs) celebration Um, Mm. it's supposed to be this shabbat morning what what kind of cake are you going to (laughs) bake what what kind of cake are you going to bake I'm thinking of making a cocoa date cake, which can also have carob uh, powder in it. You know, Ooh. in Israel, you don't have to eat dried fruits because there are plenty of fresh ones around. But the uh, historical tradition is that many Jews lived in places where there was no fresh fruit at Tu B'Shvat. So they'd have this funny looking thing that my grandfather called buxer, which is carob or St. John's bread. But that's what they could get from Eretz Israel and yeah. have as a symbol. So um, anyway, there are plenty of dates around, so I thought about making that one. Amazing. One of the things that I love about living in South Africa is, uh, so I grew up on the East Coast and, and in Canada, and, you know, it was always winter during Tu Bishvat, um, and here it's summer, so I get to actually plant trees on Tu Bishvat, um, and it's incredible. It's for For me, it's just... It's like I've synced up with the Jewish calendar in a different way. There are other holidays yes. where I'm now very out of sync, like Hanukkah is a whole other story. But um, but Tubishvat's one of these like sort of bonuses for me in in my South African life that I get to actually like enjoy and plant trees on Tubishvat. That's nice. Yeah, it's so cool. And here the the almond trees are blooming, which is always mm. the harbinger of Tubishvat and Shkeria um, Porachat. For years and years, I said, how is it that it's blossoming? It's either the middle of January or the middle of February until one day I understood that this was my diaspora headspace. It is the 15th of Shvat, no matter what month it is in the Gregorian calendar. So it's right on schedule. Right. (laughs) Right. We're out of schedule. It's right on time. (laughs) Exactly. It's, I say that every year with the high holidays. You know, people are always like, it's early this year. It's late this year. And I'm like, well, actually, it's right on time. But, yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so, Rabbi Miri Gold, oh, my gosh, what a joy and what an honor to speak with you today. You are such an inspiration. And I, I know I'm not alone in having given a major um, high holiday sermon about you uh, throughout my career so far. And um, I... in. I want to ask where our listeners can find you and reach out to you, but I also would love it if you plug David's ice cream because it's so magnificent. So can you tell us where we can learn more about David's ice cream as well? Well, if you're on Facebook, you can go to Leish Cream, L-E-I-C-H, new word cream because it rhymes. And if you look now, you'll see that we just celebrated ice cream for breakfast day, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's an international holiday. You can look it up. But um, especially for synagogue groups coming over, if there are 30 people or fewer, then there's room in our living room to taste something like 13 different flavors and learn how to um, taste the ice cream like one would taste wine. Um, so if you go into Facebook, you can find uh, information or for whatever, including ice cream, you can write to me at Miri G forty nine. I'm proudly born in nineteen forty nine at gmail.com. 
That is wonderful. And having been at one of your ice cream tastings, I can just say, I mean, I'm sitting here like salivating as I remember it. Mm, um, me too. That it was mag- magnificent. So <laughs> thank you And so I much. will say also that if um, you or any of our colleagues are coming over and want to be in touch and come and visit, um, most of the reason we do the ice cream tastings is so that we can give ice cream to our friends. So <laughs> our house is open. Oh, that's the best. Well, thank you so much. And only the best wishes to you during your retirement. And uh, looking forward to talking with you and seeing you again soon. So, and thank you. And the same to you all the best. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash women rabbis talk and on Instagram at women rabbis podcast or by sending us an email to women rabbis podcast that's women rabbis podcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash women rabbis podcast we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to submit your ask the rabbi questions Thanks so much to Seth Lindenman and to John Claude Haynes from C. Robin Tech for their help with sound tech setup. Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available more or less wherever you find other awesome podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And we edit this ourselves. So a big thanks to you, Emma. And thanks to you, Marcy. And with that, we are out. Amazing.